I was reminded, Father, as uh, I was looking at Isaiah, that you said to him something that is uh, somewhat startling. You, you said to him that you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you shall regard as holy, and he shall be your fear. And he shall be your dread. That's Isaiah 9. And every once in a while, we're reminded that the fear of the Lord is a good thing. We should be reminded more often. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But you instructed him to instruct the people that instead of living in fear of those around us or powerful people or people who have authority over us or great leaders or great nations or living in dread of them, we should be in such awe of you that you should be our dread. Now, it's a different type, but what it is, it's, it's an awe of you. Nations have some power. Great leaders have some power. You have all power. You control all things. All things. As Thomas Boston said, you control everything from the solar system to the earthworms under our feet. You control it all. The Lord is in his heavens. He does whatever he pleases. We forget that. But when we remember it, we're in awe. And there is a healthy dread, a, a respect, a, a magnificence that you have. That when we remember, it calms us and it stabilizes us and it makes us secure. That indeed, even though we deal with all kinds of different uh, challenges and issues and anxieties and worries and fears and uh, medical conditions and things that seemingly are out of our control. They're not out of your control. They're all under your governance. And you're good. You're absolutely holy. You're a God of absolute moral purity. The Lord is good, and the Lord does good. And even when hard things, difficult things, evil things occur, and they occur, you're in the heavens, and you oversee it all. But you're the God who is able to take evil and turn it for good. And sometimes, Lord, we're so overwrought with the evil in the world, we have trouble sleeping, we, we have trouble resting. But once again, we come back to you. So we're living in times of tremendous uh, turbulence, uh, tremendous anarchy and lawlessness and uh, rebellion to you. But Psalm 2 says, even as that's going on, you sit in heaven and you laugh. Because you have a plan and you have a purpose and you take care of your people. And nothing can thwart your plan. You're in charge and you're good. We can trust you. You've sent Christ to save us and redeem us.
and to forgive us. And you've put us on a path and you'll sustain us and you'll keep us going. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. This encourages us. Sometimes we get weary and we flat out get worn out and we get fatigued and we're not sure we can go another day. But your mercies are new every morning. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Thank you for who you are. And we express this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are continuing to work our way through 2 Peter 2, which, if you've been with us, you know it's a pretty gnarly chapter. It's, it's aggressive. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's bold. It's in your face. Uh, it is an expose of false teachers who were everywhere. Uh, when, when Peter wrote this, uh, and they're with us. Uh, there are always false teachers. There are always counterfeits. And the danger of false teachers is that they teach deception and lies, and you can't live off deception and lies about God. You have to have the truth about God. You have to have the firm foundation of truth. Jesus said in John 8, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Distortions about God do not set people free. They bind them up, and they disappoint them. So God tells us the truth. He is taking all of Second Peter 2 to expose these false teachers, and the, the motivations, the uh, character, the uh, behavior, the subterfuge of these false teachers, because they, they pose a tremendous danger. They're everywhere in the evangelical church. When you turn on Christian television, there's a bunch of them. And they look like they're in the camp, but they're not. We've been over this. The section that we're going to look at tonight is Second Peter chapter 2. And we're just working our way through this in kind of bite-sized chunks because it's, it's meaty. It's, uh, it, it doesn't go down easy. You've got to chew on this. And it takes time with it because it's, it's not real, um, it's not smooth, it's not real palatable. It's hard stuff. It's hard stuff to think about. It's, it's, uh, it's disturbing, but it's necessary in order to be aware of what's going on around us and the dangers that are around us. Not from outside the church, from inside the church. 
So, in 2 Peter, tonight we're going to be in verse 10, actually the second half of verse 10, down through verse 16. If I was going to title this at this moment, I would, I would title it a full body scan of false prophets. A full body scan of false prophets. Um, a, a, a full body scan, some of you have had one of those, the technology we have today is amazing, uh, provides a picture of the inner man physically. It can tell you what's going on inside. And they can do it in 3D, and they can turn it around and upside down. It's, it's amazing stuff. Second Peter provides a full body scan of the inner man spiritually. Spiritually. Because the thing about false prophets and, and false believers is that on the outside, they look like they're in the camp, they look like they're the real thing. But inside, they're not. So Peter is taking these guys apart and, and using a full body scan to tell us they're diseased here and they're diseased here and they're diseased here and they're diseased here and they're diseased here. So we got three points on our outline tonight. Number one, we're gonna look at the healthy inner character of godly leaders. The healthy inner character of godly leaders. That's number one. Secondly, we're going, to look at, we're going to look at the diseased inner character of false prophets. The diseased inner character of false prophets, of false teachers. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the diseased inner character of Balaam. Balaam, the classic false prophet. So where'd that come from? Well, let's read the text and I'll show you. So let's pick up at 2 Peter 2, the second half of, ah, let's pick up right from 10. Just know that he's talking about the false teachers. And in 9, he says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. He has the power to rescue the godly from temptation. We looked at this last week. And to keep the unrighteous under, the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. We'll come back to that. Daring. Now here goes the, here goes the, the, the body scan. Okay? Daring self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile or blaspheme angelic majesties. Whereas angels, and, and, and this gets dense and this gets heavy. But we'll, go, we'll come back to it, all right? Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, these false teachers, these false prophets, like unreasoning animals. Boy, that's, I mean, that's not a Dale Carnegie thing, is it? What was his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? How many years ago? 70 years ago? It's not how you win friends and influence people. But he's not trying to win friends and influence people to get them to like him, he's telling the truth. He's trying to save their lives. These false teachers, they're like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling or blaspheming where they have no knowledge. 
will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes and open sores and scabs is the idea. Reveling in their deceptions, they love to lie. As they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Wow, there's a memory verse for you. I think I'll commit that to memory. I mean, this is heavy-duty stuff. So in order to figure out, you have to study to show thyself approved, a workman unto God that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So in other words, you gotta dig, and you gotta do a little homework, and you gotta compare scripture with scripture, and that's why we're here. What is this stuff all about? I mean, there's a lot going on here, and, and uh, there's a lot on the line. Because when false teachers teach false doctrine, they ruin lives, and if false doctrine about Christ is believed instead of true doctrine, it's eternal damnation in hell. And see, a lot of churches don't even want to talk about hell, even if they believe in it, because it doesn't go down easy. And it's not real popular, and it's judgmental, and you get it. We're living in interesting times. We're living in times where people want their ears to be tickled. So you gotta decide if you teach the Bible if you're gonna be a God pleaser or a man pleaser. If you wanna be popular, don't teach the Bible. That, that's not how you get there. Uh, but if you wanna see people's lives changed, teach the Bible. Because it's not an idle word for you, it is your life. Uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. That's why we're studying the scriptures tonight. So, heavy duty stuff. We're gonna have to, uh, we're gonna have to dive into the deep end and go deep. So here we go. Uh, let's start with number one. Let's first of all start uh, with the healthy inner character of a godly spiritual leader. Now, let me say a word about Balaam before we go any further. Because he mentioned Balaam, and we're going to end with Balaam. Balaam, <laughs> Balaam is kind of the classic, all-pro, Old Testament uh, false prophet. And the guys that Peter is talking about in his day, who are false teachers, and the guys that he said in the text will come in our day and who are around, they're all kind of following in the path of Balaam. He's, uh, he's the classic guy. 
if you're old enough, you remember, you know, there used to be some great Westerns on TV. Man, I mean, there was, there was some great Westerns. If you're old enough, there are advantages to being old. I mean, you remember Gunsmoke. You remember uh, Bonanza. Let's just stand and do that. There are no words to that song. You You could finish it. Don't look at me that way. That's a great hymn of the faith. You had Gunsmoke, you had Bonanza. You had Wyatt Earp, you had Shenandoah. What else? Oh, Rawhide. Oh, my gosh. Don't get me. I, I almost said, don't get me started. I started this. Between 50, 1957 and 1963, there was a, a Western called Paladin. Richard Boone. Yeah, and before, and before it was a TV show, it was on the radio for years and years and years. But Paladin, Paladin was a guy who was, he was, an, he was a gunfighter, but he was upper class. In fact, you know, there are guys, you can go online and you can find out all kinds of stuff because you got retired guys that have no purpose in life anymore. And so they go back and they'll watch every show and every series and they'll make copious notes and they'll post it. So it's what they do and you can benefit from their knowledge. Uh, apparently Paladin, and I didn't know any of this because I was just a kid when I watched it, but he had uh, been an officer in the Civil War. He had attended the United States Military Academy. He was uh, from an upper crust family. He lived in a high-end hotel in San Francisco. He lived the good life. But he was a gunfighter. And if you had a problem... Paladin could fix it. And he had a business card. And the business card was in the opening credits. And it just simply, and, and it had a logo. I mean, Paladin was very hip back then in the 1870s. He had his own logo. It was a, a, a knight's piece on a chessboard. You know, a carved head of a horse. Which was emblematic of kind of what he did. He was a knight like you had in the Middle Ages that would go and fight and do good and protect the innocent and all that and go to war. So you had this logo of this horse's head and underneath it, actually on top it would say paladin and then you'd have the horse's head and then right below it, it would say have gun hyphen will travel. Have gun will travel. Wire, Paladin, San Francisco. There you go. That guy knew what he was doing. He probably had a website. <laughs> and he would charge, if you had trouble, his fee was $1,000, which some retired guy figured out in today's money was about 120,000 bucks. So for 120, 125 grand, He'd come and fix your problem, and he would just flat out take care of it. Have gun will travel. 
Balaam is the classic Old Testament false prophet. And uh, if he had a business card, his card would have said, have deceptions, will travel. Because that's what he did. We'll get to him in a minute. But first, we want to look at the real deal. So, we're going to look at the healthy inner character of a godly leader, a godly spiritual leader. First uh, Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. We won't spend a lot of time on this, but we, we want to... Because this is all about character. This is the inner man. Character is what's inside. So when you do the full body scan spiritually, it comes down to character. And what's happening in First Peter, First uh, Timothy three, if I didn't say that, First Timothy three, in verse one, and then he's got for, he's got another list in Titus one, beginning with verse five. But we'll just look at First Timothy three, verse one. It's a trustworthy statement if a man aspires to the office of overseer of elder. It's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must be the graduate of an Ivy League school. He must have a net worth of several million dollars. He must be highly connected in the business world. Now, you'd think, to look at some churches, how they're run, that that's in the text. But that's not what the text says. The text says, an elder, then, must be above reproach. You look at his character... And there's nothing that can disqualify him. Now, let me say this. These are all in the present tense. Because you see, we've all got stuff in our lives and in our past that would disqualify us. But when we come to Christ, we're babes in Christ and we're immature. But a man who begins to walk with Christ and has a teachable spirit is going to start the process of growth and maturity in Christ. So that's why you don't put a new convert in as an elder. He, he, he doesn't have the miles on the tires. He doesn't have the experience. He doesn't know the scripture. Not yet. Okay. So there, there is nothing in this guy's life that someone could bring up and say, he disqualified me. And in some churches, and I've seen it done in this church, when... An elder is chosen and put up before the congregation. The statement is made, if you know of anything from your dealings with this man that would disqualify him, please let the elders know. Because this is serious stuff. doesn't mean we don't have stuff. It just means you've dealt with your stuff. And uh, you've got a consistency now because you've been walking with the Lord. And you've developed some spiritual muscle. Okay. So he must be above reproach. The husband and one wife or a one woman kind of man is the idea. Doesn't mean that someone um, who has been married before and the wife passed away or even if uh, I, I know several guys that went through some tough divorces way back. And through that and through other situations, now they actually have marriage ministries. And... This is present tense. A one woman kind of man now. Okay? Uh, he must be temperate. Or some translations would say sober minded. Uh, prudent. Uh, Self controlled. Uh, respectable. 
That means uh, you've got gravitas, you've got weight in your life. You're, you're not flighty, you're not uh, impetuous or impulsive. There's, there's a gravitas, there's a weight, there's a seriousness. Uh, hospitable, able to teach. You're able to defend the scriptures. Uh, not addicted to wine, you're not, you're not a drunkard, maybe you used to be, and maybe that's something you struggle with, but we've all got our stuff. Uh, or pugnacious. That means you don't punch out people in the church you don't like. Uh, that was supposed to be humorous. I think some of you were worried about it. Um, it means you, you, you don't get in fistfights all the time. Maybe you used to, but you don't now. Okay? Uh, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. You love Christ more than you love money. You can't love God and money. You got to choose. You got to have money, but you love Christ more. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And here we go. Not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. These are all character qualifications. Uh, that's the healthy inner character of a godly spiritual leader. Let's go to the second point. Let's look at the diseased inner character of the false prophet. The diseased inner character of the false prophet. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. And let's pick it up in verse 10. Um, we're we're going to see three things here under this. And I'll go ahead and give them to you. And then we'll go back through and, and pick them up. But, but under this diseased inner character, the first thing we're going to see is, is that the minds of the false prophets despise authority. They despise it. Uh, that's right there in verse 10. They despise authority. You say, what authority? All authority. The authority of God, who is the ultimate authority, the authority of the word of God, the authority of the church, the authority of the elders. Uh, they don't want, now, boy, does that not describe our day? We are uh, anti-authority. We're all about personal freedom, individual liberty. That means I don't answer to anybody. But you see, that's not how things work. We're all under authority. But they despise authority. That is their M.O. And when you see a false teacher, they despise authority. Now, now, why do they despise authority is the question. Uh, and, but I didn't give you the other two, did I? Let me give you the other two. Then I'll come back to this. Secondly, so their minds despise authority. Secondly, their eyes are diseased with adultery. Their eyes are diseased with adultery. And we'll pick that up uh, in verse 14. And then thirdly, their hearts are trained in greed. 
That's also in verse 14. So when you run the full body scan, the, their minds despise authority, their eyes are diseased with authority, and their hearts are trained in greed. All right? Let's go back to the first one. Why do they despise authority? They, they despise authority. Look at the next verse. Look at verse, um, the second half of 10. It says, it says in 10, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Watch this. Daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Angelic majesties have authority. Now, I'm not going to get into that right now, but that's a, another level of authority. Uh, why do they despise authority? Because they are daring and they're self-willed. Um, so, William Barclay has an excellent explanation of this. Uh, He's always got great insights into the Greek text, almost always. He says, let's talk about daring. He says, there are two kinds of daring. There is the daring which is a noble thing, the mark of true courage and bravery. But there is the daring which is an evil thing. The daring which dares to do things, it has no right to dare to do. So it can be good or it can be bad. The false prophets have the wrong kind of daring. There are certain things, Barclay says, which a man has no right to dare to do. To do them means the defying of conscience and the defying of the law of God. The bad man is the man who dares to defy the will of God as it is known to him. So as Romans would put it, Romans 1, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. But suppressing the truth and unrighteousness they know God is there, but if you acknowledge God's there, then you gotta bow the knee to God. I, I've got a quote that's in one of Tim Keller's books that comes from, I believe it's Aldous Huxley. And Huxley, and hadn't planned on sharing it, and I don't have it memorized, but in essence, Huxley, who is a humanist, basically said, and he purports to be an atheist, but he basically says, yeah, there's, um, there's real strong evidence that God is there. But if I acknowledge that God is there, I can't live the life of sexual freedom that I want to live. I mean, let's give him credit. He came out and said it. Yeah, there's all kinds of evidence that God exists. But if I acknowledge he exists, I gotta bow the knee and I'm not bowing the knee to anybody. There's a right kind of daring and there's a wrong kind of daring. The false prophets dare to defy God and his law. Now, the next phrase that's in here, and we're asking the questions, uh, why do they despise authority? And then, to me, this really gets to the heart of the matter, is the next phrase in verse 10, it says, daring and self-willed. The idea of self-willed has the idea of self-pleasing. 
It's just what Huxley said. I want to please myself. If God is there and he's the authority, then I can't please myself. I've got to please God. So it's just easier for me to deny that God is there and deny that God exists and then I'm accountable to God. Because I'm a self-pleaser. False teachers, false prophets are self-pleasers. It's, it's all about them. It, it's, it's very similar to selfish ambition. It's, it's the need to lead, it's the need to be in control, it's the need to have your agenda, it's the need to have your way, it's the need to have attention on you, it's, it's the need to be number one. When you're self-willed, you're self-pleasing. When, when two people get married who are self-willed, it's gonna be a real rocky road. Or when two people get married and one is self-pleasing, it's going to be a rocky road. Or when you start a business with a partner and you're both self-pleasing or one is self-pleasing, it's going to be tough. Because it, all that person cares about is themselves. That's it. And they have an agenda and they've got something in mind and come hell or high water, they're going to get there. And whoever gets in the way is going to get pummeled. Self-willed, self-loving. Um, see, you... <laughs> This is why they despise authority. They are their own authority. And there is no other authority besides them. About 40 years ago, actually a little longer than that, I had a friend. I, I, uh, I was wrapping up seminary. I had a friend who took a staff position at a church on the West Coast that was the fastest growing church in America. And I mean, they were just blowing it out. Real strong Bible church. The guy who was leading the church was a tremendous communicator. He was young, but extremely gifted. And so I, Mary and I were taking a trip and I called my buddy and we got together, and so I'll see you on Thursday or whatever it was. And so when I went by to see him, he said, hey, yeah, we, we got about an hour or so, and then I'm going to call this guy Joe, who was the young, dynamic pastor. He said, hey, Joe's uh, around, and he invited us to lunch. I said, great. So um, anyway, wind up having lunch with this guy. And, I mean, he's solid. He's got the degree from the right seminary. He knows the scriptures. He's been well-trained. Uh, and he's really the draw because of, because of his gifts. And a uh, very outgoing guy, very dynamic. As we're having lunch, he's telling a lot of stories. And the guy's, the guy's hilarious. 
And at a certain point, he mentioned a book. He, he said, oh, by the way, hey, I got to tell you guys about a book I've read that's just incredible. And then he, we went on to something else, and then it, it came up again. And he says, when we go back to the office, I'm going to show you this book. And as we were driving back to the office, he said, yeah, this book, I'm telling you, this book is life-changing. It's, it's, it's incredible how it's changed my perspective on everything. And uh, I said, who wrote the book? And he said, uh, I believe the guy's name is Robert Rinker. I think that's it. And I said, I haven't heard of him. And he goes, yeah. He said, I'll show it to you when we get to my office. And he pulled down the book, and the title of the book was Looking Out for Number One. Looking Out for Number One. And he said, you got to read this book, Steve. So that afternoon, I bought the book, and I read it. And the next day, I knew this guy was in trouble. Because that book was all about being self-willed. And it was, um, it was all about pleasing yourself. Looking out for number one. I mean, it was blatant. Now, I'm not sure of the name of the author, if that's exactly right, but I got the title right. Um, huh? That's the author? Thanks. I was stunned. I mean, I was stunned. Uh, in biblical terms, that book was all about selfish ambition. It was all about looking out for yourself. It was all... It could have been written by a guy named Diotrephes. Flip over to 3 John. You got 1 John. Go to the right. 2 John, and then you have 3 John. So the Apostle John is writing this very brief letter. 3 John. Uh, the elder, the apostle John, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Um, so he's, he's, he's speaking to Gaius. And you've got two key people in this little letter. You have Gaius, who is a godly man. Uh, his body scan is healthy, spiritually. And then you've got another guy named Diotrephes in verse 9. And, uh, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a walking... Uh, I mean, this guy is diseased. You, you don't want to shake hands with this guy. Verse 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first. <laughs> there you go. What a description. Oh, you know Diotrephes? Oh, yeah, yeah. What do you think of Diotrephes? Oh, yeah, he loves to be first. Well, man, you better get out of the way. He's a self-pleaser. He's a self-lover. And see, when you love yourself, you despise authority, and that's what you find here. And this guy's in the church. This guy's a leader. He's a false leader. He's a false teacher. But he's got some kind of area of responsibility in the church. But Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, now watch this, does not accept what we say. Well, that's a bit of a problem because the Apostle John is an apostle. And Ephesians 2 says that the church is built 
on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. So the prophets have the authority of Christ. And when they write scripture, and when they led the churches, they were to be listened to. Keep your finger there and flip over to Hebrews. Last chapter of Hebrews, which is 13. Hebrews 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So in other words, if leaders are leading the church according to the scriptures, our job is to submit to their authority. Now sometimes churches get off and they get off from the scriptures and they get away from the scriptures. That's a whole other issue. But what you've got is Diotrephes not wanting to submit to authority. He does not accept what we say. And John was personally commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to the deeds which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so to put the, and puts them out of the church. So they would send out missionaries, and they didn't have holiday inns or motel sixes or four seasons, so you had to stay with people in the churches. And this guy was, you know, some kind of church bully. And uh, if he didn't like what you were doing, oh, you came from the Apostle John? No, you can't, you know, no, you're out of here. There's no place for you. So John says, I'm going to handle this guy when I show up. <laughs> what was his problem? He was a self-lover. And he would not submit to authority. He despised authority. And he's in the church. Uh, ESV Study Bible has a great comment. The false teachers are uh, bold and daring in a reckless, foolhardy way, and they're willful. That's the self-love. They're stubborn and they're arrogant, behaving in ways that even the angels avoid. Now, this passage talks about despising authority, and then it talks about the authority of angels. And th this stuff gets very interesting. And you can compare it with what's in the book of Jude, uh, what, what, is, what does all of this mean? Um, it, it means that these false teachers are, are so arrogant and they despise authority even to, the, to a point of, um, well, here's what this paragraph says in the ESV Study Bible. They blaspheme the glorious ones mentioned in verse 11. Probably evil angels. In so doing, they recklessly dismiss any thought that these demonic forces have power or that their willful sins will open them to demonic attack. But good angels, like wise humans, do not take these evil powers lightly. We can't spend a lot of time on this, but as we said last week, there is a spirit world, there's an angelic world, and you have the angels who are messengers of the Lord and do his bidding, and then you have fallen angels. 
uh, who are evil angels and minions of Satan. Um, the false teachers are so arrogant, they're certainly not followers of Christ, but they even despise the authority of Satan and his angels, and they think that they can go into deeper sin without having any consequences accrue in their lives. Um, when I think false teachers today, so you've got the cults. You've got Mormonism, you've got Christian science, you've got the Eastern mysticism religions, you've got all this different stuff. Uh, you also have um, the prosperity gospel movement, which is huge in America and massive in Africa and South America, that God always wants you healthy and wealthy and basically you can command God to bless you in all of this utter, utter uh, deception. God's a good God, he's our father, but in prosperity theology there is absolutely no room for, um, there, there's no room for suffering. But suffering is a part of the Christian life, it's how God matures us and trains us. So you have different uh, aspects of the charismatic movement uh, the prosperity theology, uh, and they, they go together. Um, in, in some of the more extreme uh, aspects of the charismatic movement, there's a lot of input, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on demons and casting out demons and having power over demons and commanding demons, and it, it gets... Uh, pretty extreme. Now there's power in the name of Jesus, there's no doubt about that. But these guys start throwing this around like they have some kind of power that they don't have. There's just bizarre stuff. So there is a church out of Redding, California called Bethel. You wanna be careful of these guys because they got some strange stuff going on in this dimension. They're, they're, believe me, they're out there. So just be alert. Uh, I don't want to go into this in a lot of depth, but let's go to that little book of Jude. We were real close to it when we were in 3 John. You don't mind if we go to these different passages, do you? I mean, isn't that what we're here for? Now here is another passage. It's gonna raise all kinds of questions and we don't have the time tonight to answer all the questions that are gonna come up about this. I'm just trying to make a point that there are angelic authorities and we're to be respectful of them. They are all under Christ. As a believer, you're aware that the ultimate authority is the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you ever come up against a demonic influence you stand in Christ. There's, there's where you're, that's your safe spot. So in verse eight of Jude, yet, and, he, and he's talking about false teachers. In many ways, this parallels Second Peter, in many ways. Yet in, I'm in verse eight of Jude, yet in the same way, these men, these false teachers, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Same thing that Peter's talking about. 
But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, and you're saying, what? That occurred. Did not pronounce, did not dare pronounce against Satan, against him, a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. All I'm saying here is, are there demonic entities? Yeah. Are they real? Yeah. If you go to Haiti or you go to Africa, they're very aware of them. Not so much here, but they're real. If you ever come across, I came across them when I was on a high school mission trip in Jamaica. And I was in a church service one night and it suddenly got very, very strange and very weird and something was wrong, deeply wrong, with what was being said and how worship was taking place. And I'm a 16-year-old kid. And I'm in the mountains of Jamaica with two other young guys. And there's stuff going on we'd never seen before. And I remember just bowing my head and saying, Lord, if you're not in this, stop it now, please, Lord Jesus. And it stopped. The Lord rebuke you, not me. I'm just some punk kid who's scared. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Because Jesus is over every authority. Does that make sense? Okay. If you don't, you don't have to go study angelology. Just remember that. <laughs> the Lord rebuke you. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. All power has been given to me. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There you go. There's your power. There's power in the name of Jesus. This is heavy duty stuff, isn't it? I mean, this isn't, um, yeah, I mean, this isn't the World Series. This isn't the Nationals. This isn't the bullpen of the Astros. I mean, this is heavy duty, eternal stuff. And it's all around us. So the scan, the internal scan of the false teachers, they despise authority. That means they despise the authority of Christ. That means they despise the authority of the word of God. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 9. So in Luke 9, Jesus is laying it out very, very clearly. And in verse 23, it says, 9.23 of Luke, And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. There is your uh, antidote to self-will. There is your antidote to self-pleasing. If anyone wishes to come after me, if you want to be a follower of Christ, if you want a healthy internal body scan spiritually, you deny yourself. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Watch this. For, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
If you're gonna hold on to your life and your plans and your dreams and you've got this goal and come hell or hard wider, no matter what anybody says, you're gonna do this and you're gonna do this and you're gonna do this, you know what's gonna happen to you? You're gonna lose your life. That's what he says. Whoever wishes to save us, and why would you hold on to it? Because you think that's your salvation. You think that's the answer for your life. It isn't. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Ah, but he who loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Is that counterintuitive or what? Well, I just want the Lord to answer my prayers. Someone has said, the prayer that is always answered, always answered every time, is this one. Not my will, but thine be done. That's the prayer that God loves. And that's the prayer that God answers. But see, so often, and this is what we gotta fight, our, our, down in our gut, our prayer is, not thy will, Lord, but mine be done. We'd never say that, but that's what we're thinking. <laughs> and we get so disappointed when our will does not get accomplished. But if our will doesn't get accomplished, have you walked with the Lord long enough now to know that he's got something better in mind? Uh, Proverbs 16, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. All, I, every guy in this room can look back and you had a plan and there was something you wanted to see happen. It was the best possible outcome and it didn't happen and you were devastated, but look what God's done. It goes on further in, in uh, Proverbs 16. There is a way it seems right to a man. Ah, but the end thereof is destruction. But see, false teachers, they're self-pleasers and they despise authority. And they're not giving it up for anybody. Uh, the scan reveals two other things about the disease of the false teachers. Uh, the second one is, and these go right together in, back in 2 Peter 2, uh, their eyes are diseased with adultery. Their eyes are diseased with adultery. That means that they cannot, they cannot look at a woman without thinking of her sexually. That's how far gone they are. That's just what they're about. Um, as we said last week, Wrong doctrine always comes out in wrong living. Uh, evil teaching comes out in evil behavior. So they're diseased. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Christ can change that in our lives. He can change that. Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to thy word. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. So what happens is, 
we come to the Lord and we start studying his word and we start hearing his word and we start growing in his word and we start putting his word in our heart and it begins to change. It changes us, it changes our thinking, and when you change your thinking, you change your behavior. Does it happen overnight in a microwave? No, it's a process. And then in 14, the next thing that the inner, the full body scan reveals is, is about their hearts. Their, their hearts uh, are, what does it say in the text? It says they have a heart trained in greed. Trained. They train. Like you train for a marathon. Or you train for some kind of athletic event. Or you train for this. Or you train. It's trained in greed. These guys are all about the money. Which leads us to Balaam. Number three. The diseased inner character of Balaam, who is the classic false prophet. So you have 14, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. Now watch this. They have gone astray. They have forsaken Christ. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam. He's the trendsetter. Who loved the wages of unrighteousness, who loved the money of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey. By the way, all donkeys are mute. But this mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. What? So we're gonna go to the book of Numbers. And we're going to close with this guy, Balaam, because it all wraps up in Balaam. Balaam was a guy, when you, when you read through Numbers, and you get into Numbers 22, 23, 24, and on into 31, there's a lot written about this guy. And he can be confusing because at certain points, he looks like a prophet of God. But then at other points... He's, he, he's not a prophet of God. And he's referred to in other scriptures. Uh, Balaam is, uh, Balaam was a, a prophet. He was a spiritual gunslinger like Paladin. And what happened was there was this king of the Moabites who hated Israel and had heard about Balaam and his ability uh, to gun down opponents, and he wired Balaam, and uh, here comes Balaam. And Balaam had his fees, and he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He loved them. And when you really get into this, and this is, there's, I mean, this is a long story. And we're not going to read it all. We don't have time to read it all. So we're going to summarize it. But he, Balaam, kept playing this king to get more and more and more money out of this guy. And what the guy wanted him to do was curse Israel. Just curse Israel. Um, I was thinking this morning how I could summarize this. And 
I came across uh, Glenn Martin's section on numbers, and he did it really well. So I'm going to let Glenn do it for us. Uh, what's the deal with Balaam? So here's what, uh, how Martin starts out. Balaam is a prophet called upon by Balak, who is the king of the Moabites, to curse Israel. God tells Balaam not to meet with Balak, but he does anyway and proceeds to offer three prophecies. Each prophecy is a blessing to God's people instead of a curse, and Balak gets very angry. So he pays this guy three different times. Curse Israel, and out of his mouth, Balaam's mouth, comes a blessing on Israel. Three, not once, not twice, three times. And this guy's paid him off three times. But God will not allow him to curse Israel. So Balaam, about Balak gets very upset. In the concluding score, Balaam demonstrates his lack of personal integrity by teaching Balak how to bring Israel down through idolatry. These are dark days for Israel, and God's judgment falls. Um, Balaam was a prophet for hire. His focus was on the almighty dollar, metaphorically speaking, was known by God and, the, and, and by the king of the Moabites, uh, Balak. I mean, this guy was a spiritual gunslinger for evil. Would Balaam compromise principle to gain wealth? Yes. Was Balaam's conscience so seared that he would sell out God's people for advancement? Yes. And what would God think of all this? The story of Balaam is a picture of many people in this world who are caught between desire and faithfulness to God. Man, we all struggle with this. Uh, so, so Balaam never actually cursed Israel. He blessed them. But apparently what he did, he gave counsel to the king of the Moabites on how to bring down Israel. And what he said is, you get them involved with foreign women, and then you get them involved with foreign women, and you get them involved sexually, and then what they're going to do is they're going to worship the gods of the foreign women. And that's exactly what happened. In fact, if you look at Numbers 31, verse 16, um, this is indeed what happened. There was an occurrence that happened at Peor, and there was a judgment of God that came down. And in verse 15, they had gotten involved with these women, and Moses said to them, 31:15 in Numbers, Moses said to them, have you spared all the women? Verse 16, behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Um, Balaam was a bad dude. He, he looked good at times, but he was all about immorality. Oh, I'll show, yeah, you want to bring down Israel? Well, listen, even if I, all I, all I can do is bless them. But here's how you bring them down. You get these foreign women and get these guys involved with these foreign women and all kinds of sexual acts. And, and that's exactly what happened. And God judged them and brought them down. What's the thing about Balaam and the donkey? 
That's Numbers 22. And we'll close with this. It's an in, kind of an interesting... It, it's, it's, one of the, uh, it's one of the passages in Scripture that people think are absolutely and utterly ridiculous and there's no way in the world that they can be true. Um, in, in fact... Um, Martin makes this statement. He says, critics and skeptics cite Balaam's encounter with his donkey as a clear example of why we can't take the Bible seriously. Conservatives counter that the God who created the world in six days by speaking it into existence could certainly speak through Balaam's donkey. The miracle demands no more imagination than that required for Jonah's descent into the great fish's belly. One commentator notes that irrational animals have a much keener instinct, presentiment of many natural phenomena, such as earthquakes, storms, than man has with five senses of his mind. Did you get what he's saying there? If you're on a farm in California, in the Sierra foothills, and your animals start getting spooked, and you've been a farmer for a while or a rancher, you're, you're thinking earthquake. Because they pick up on stuff. So in Numbers 22, verse 21. So Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. But God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. So God's going to block him from going. Now he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn him back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw that the angel of the Lord, saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam was so angry, he struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me. Now I got a question. Who is the real ass here? <laughs> this is hilarious. This guy is so hell-bent on going the way that he wants to go that when this donkey speaks to, speaks to him, he doesn't stop and say, wait a minute. He comes back as quick as he can like he's talking to his wife. I mean, he's in full force debate and making his case with an animal. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. She said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? Balaam said to the donkey, because you made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey in which you've ridden all of your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed all the way to the ground. Hmm. There's more to the story. But um, 
That's what you call being self-willed. That's what you call despising authority. When I was in seminary, I, I think I started when I was 23. Different, uh, they'd have chapel services and we'd have different men come in. And over the three or four years that I was in seminary, I heard some uh, excellent warnings from some very wise men. And basically they said to us young guys that were going to ministry that you've got to guard your heart. Because not everyone who starts strong finishes strong. And what happens is we have an enemy who wants to take us out. So men are taken out by women, sex, immorality, homosexuality. That's one way. Men can be taken out by pride. Too much success, too fast, too young to handle it. By the way, the guy that I mentioned who wanted me to read the book looking out for number one while he wanted me to read that book was involved in an affair with his assistant. And his wife found out, divorced, split the church, he left, just absolute mess, just an utter mess. Uh, the warning, be careful of pride. And I try to pray often, let not the foot of pride come upon me. You start thinking you're something and you're not. But when you're young and you have too much success, you're, you're very vulnerable. So that's one way is pride. The second way is sex. The third way is the love of money. And I think back over how many years ago that was when I would hear those different wise men of God give instruction to us. And uh, I can remember looking around at the guys that were in those classrooms and in the chapels. Guys that are sold out for Christ. Absolutely sold out for Christ. And thinking... I just wonder. And then I'm looking at myself. And as the years have gone by, this guy's gone down because of immorality. This guy has gone down. It's too much success, too fast. Lost his integrity. quit studying, started preaching other guys' messages, got found out, almost preaching them verbatim. And when you're preaching to thousands of people, you're going to get found out. But see, when you're real proud, you think you're not going to get found out. And then how many guys have gone down because of the love of money? More than a few. I think I've said this before, and I'm going to say it one more time. I'm afraid of me because I know my own heart. 
And I've seen better men than me go down. So, when you study something like this, what do you do with it? I think you um, look at your x-rays. And you get a fresh set. And you get a fresh body scan. And as Proverbs 4 says, guard your heart. Check it out. For from it flows the wellsprings of life. Am I lying to anybody about anything? Am I looking at stuff I shouldn't be looking at? Have I got something going on financially that's not squeaky clean? And the Lord will let you know, and he probably already has. So what do you do? Take care of it. Just take care of it. Come clean. Turn from sin and turn to him. And it may be that it would involve having to talk with a brother in Christ to get their help and to get their assistance. But come clean. The enemy loves to take a guy who's following Christ and he loves to isolate him from other men. And when he can isolate you from other men who are walking with Christ, he's got you. You're going down. It, it's, it's like those National Geographic shows when you got a bunch of lions going after a, a bunch of antelope and they isolate one. It's over. It's over. He who walks with wise men will be wise. And the great thing about the Lord is he's always there for us. So let's pray together, shall we? Father, you said in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We all struggle with sin. We struggle with it every day. But we want to guard our hearts. And we don't want to go down a path any further than perhaps we've gone down already and we know it's wrong. This is life and death stuff. You, uh, you love us and you tell us the truth in your word. Uh, you, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Some of us need to be reproved tonight. Some of us need to be corrected. We need to be put right back on the right path. But it starts with us. May we listen to your voice and may we come to you and receive your grace and mercy and forgiveness and you'll restore us. We ask these things in your supreme name, the name of Jesus. Amen.